ओम नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय ओम नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय भगवते वासुदेवाय सो रीडिंग इन श्रीमद भागवतम कैंटो टेन एंड वी आर बिगिनिंग चैप्टर एटी सेवन दर्मिटेबल प्रेयर्स ऑफ दर्सोनाफाइड This chapter presents the prayers by the personified Vedas, glorifying the personal and impersonal aspects of Lord Narayana. Uh, and then a couple of paragraphs. King Parikshit asks Sri Dasukadev Goswami how the Vedas can directly refer to the supreme absolute truth, Brahman, since the Vedas <coughs> deal with the material realm governed by the three modes of nature. And Brahman is completely transcendental to these modes. In reply, uh, Shukadev Goswami describes an ancient encounter between Sri Narayana Rishi and Narada Muni at Badri Kashram. Traveling to that sacred hermitage, Narada found the Lord uh, surrounded by exalted residents of the nearby village of Kalapa. After bowing down to Narayana Rishi and his associates, Narada submitted the same question in, to him. In reply, Narayana Rishi related an account of how this very question had been discussed long ago among the great sages living in Janaka Loka. Once these sages, feeling inquisitive about the nature of the absolute truth, chose. Sanandana Kumar to speak on the subject. Sanandana told them how the numerous personified Vedas appearing as the first emanation from the breathing of Lord Narayana recited prayers for his glorification just before the creation. Sanandana then proceeded to recite these elaborate prayers. The residents of Janakaloka. Janaloka, excuse me, Janaloka were perfectly satisfied upon hearing Sanandana recite the prayers of the personified Vedas, which enlivened them about the true nature of the supreme absolute truth, and they honored Sanandana with their worship. With their worship, Narada Muni was equally satisfied to hear this account from Sri Narayana Rishi. Thus, Narada offered his obeisances to the Lord. And then went to see his disciple Vedavyas, to whom he explained everything he had heard. Conversations nested within conversations <laughs> within conversations. <laughs> It goes way back. So now we're up to text number one. We'll chant this text. I'm going to do this a little differently. The commentary goes on for several pages. And so I'll, uh, instead of reading the whole purport and then talking a little bit about it, I'll do it in sections uh, because it'll, okay, we'll try to get through it. So, text number one. Say after me: Shri Parikshit, Uvacha, Brahman, Brahmani. Anirdeshe, Nirgune, Guna, Vrittayaha, Katam, Charanti, Hrutayaha, Sakshat, Sat, Asataha, Hare, Sri Parikshit Dubacha, Brahman Brahman Yadeshi, excuse me, Brahman Brahman Yadeshi, Nirgune, 
निर्गुणे गुण वृत्तय कथम चरतीशूतय साक्षत्सारत परे ब्रह्मन ब्रह्मन यनिर्देशे निर्गुणे गुना पिटाया कथम ृत्तय निर्गुणे which has no qualities guna the qualities of material nature mrtayaha whose scope of action katam how charanti function by referring shrutayaha the vedas sakshat directly sat to material substance asataha and its subtle causes are in that which is transcendental translation shri parikshit said oh brahmana how can the vedas directly describe the absolute supreme absolute truth who cannot be described in words The Vedas are limited to describing the qualities of material nature but the supreme is devoid of these qualities being transcendental to all material manifestations and their causes. And that's the question. Namaham Vishnu Padaya Krishna Vistaya Bhutale Shamati Bhakti Vedanta Swaminiti Namane Namaste Sarasatte Deve Gauravari Pacharini 
Yevishesha Sunyavari Sitarane Banjakolpa Trupischa Kripasim Dubiabacha Titanam Bhavanabio Vaishnavio Namo Namaha. So in the purport first uh, they uh, are quoting uh, Sridhar Swami's invocation before commenting on this and then Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur's invocation and basically the purport is first Sridhar Swami's and then Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur's or vice versa I don't know what's the first so I'll read this uh, uh, the invocations here before beginning his commentary on this chapter Srila Sridhar Swami prays he's the first commentator on the Bhagavatam so he prays like this Vagisha yasya vandane Lakshmir yasya chavakshasi Yasya ste hridaye sambit Tam shingam hambaje I worship Lord Nashringadev within whose mouth resides the great masters of eloquence upon whose chest resides the goddess of fortune and within whose heart resides the divine potency of consciousness. Srila Swami was a devotee of Nishringa Bhakta. And so that's why he offers his prayers to Nishringa Dev. Not very nice prayer. This uh, Vag Isha, uh, the, the masters of eloquence in his mouth, chest, the goddess of fortune, heart, the divine potency of consciousness, the Sambit. Nice, nice prayer. And then he goes on, again quoting Sridhar Swami, Sampradaya Vishudhyartam Suya Nirbanda Yantitaha Shukti Stukti Mitavakyam Karishyami Yadhamati Desiring to purify my Sampradaya and being bound by duty, I will briefly comment on the prayers of the personified Vedi, Vedas to the best of my realization. Yata'a Mati also shows up in Bhagavatam. And then he continues, Srimad Bhagavatam Purvai Sarata Sanishevitam Mayatu Tad Upasprishtam Uchistam Upachiyate Inasmuch as Srimad Bhagavatam has already been perfectly honored by my predecessor's explanations, I can only gather together the remnants of what they have honored. So then, uh, going on to Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur, he offers his own invocation. Mamaratna Vedic Bhavam Ratnya. Ratnyanya parichinvataha asantu santo jihrimbi naswa svanta vinodakrit. The saintly devotees may laugh at me for becoming a jewel merchant, though I nothing know nothing about precious jewels. But I feel no sh- feel no shame for at least I may entertain them. In other words, Report seems to be that the chintamani, the jewels of the Vedas, the spiritual gems, he's kind of distributing it even though he says, I don't know anything about them. <laughs> this is understandable. Namaste, Namaste, excuse me, I got the wrong tune, don't I? Namaste, Vaidushapi, Napi, Boktir, Vidakti, Daktir, Natatapi, Laujat, Suturgamat, Eva, Bhavami, Veda. So now, yeah, here's what the purport is. Though I have no wisdom, devotion, or detachment, I am still greedy 
to take the philosopher's stones, the Vedas' prayers from the fortress in which it is being kept. That's really sweet, huh? Mam <laughs> aviveka vacha pravartate pat taitum balachet Likam yata swami sanatana shri krishnangri bhastamba kritavalambaha if the wind of indiscretion, my failure to acknowledge my lowly position, threatens to knock me down, then while writing this commentary, I must hold on to the effulgent pillars of the feet of Sridhar Swami, Sanatana Goswami, and Lord Sri Krishna. <laughs> Pranam Sri Gurum Bhuja Sri Krishnam Karunaranavam Lokanatam Jagat Chakshu Sri Shukam Tam Pasraye Repeatedly bowing down to my divine spiritual master and to Lord Sri Krishna, the ocean of mercy, I take shelter of Sri Sukadev Goswami, the protector of the world and its universal eye. <coughs> This is a very wonderful prayer. It's notice both of them uh, honor their predecessors and claim to be totally unqualified and worthless, but just trying to uh, get a little bit from them. I'm going to read a press predecessor. I'm going to read uh, Prabhupada's uh, uh, discussion of this. When he did Krishna book, Chapter 27 of Krishna book is prayers for the sonified Vedas. So, first, here's what Srila Prabhupada, first couple of paragraphs of that. So, this is Prabhupada's summary of this. King Parikshit inquired, from this verse particularly, King Parikshit inquired from Shukadeva Goswami about a very important topic in understanding transcendental subject matter. His question was, no, no, it's this very important topic. I mean, this is really gets to the like, kind of essence of how we're going to understand the, the Vedas. Um, his question was, since Vedic knowledge generally deals with the subject matter of the three qualities of the material world, how then can it approach the subject matter of transcendence, which is beyond the approach of the three material modes? modes? Since the mind is material and the vibration of words is a material sound, how can the Vedic knowledge expressed by material sound through uh, expressing, how can the Vedic knowledge expressing by material sound the thoughts of the material mind approach transcendence? Descriptions of a subject matter necessitates describing its source of emanation, its qualities, and its activities. Such description can be possible only by thinking with the material mind and by vibrating material worlds. Brahman, or the Absolute Truth, has no material qualities, but our power of speaking does not go beyond the material qualities. How, then? And Brahman, the absolute truth, be described by your words. I do not see how it is possible to understand transcendence from such expressions of material sound. The purpose of King Purikshit's inquiry was to ascertain from Shukadeva Goswami whether the Vedas ultimately describe the absolute truth as impersonal or as personal. Understanding the Absolute Truth progresses in three features, impersonal Brahman, Paramatma, localized in everyone's heart, and at last, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Krishna. So that's <coughs> summary of this. So now we'll begin the, uh, uh, the purport here. At the end of the preceding chapter, Shukadeva Goswami told Parikshit Maharaj, Evam Swabhaktayo Rajan Bhagavan Bhakta Bhakta.
Bhaktiman Vadisha Sanmargam Punar Dwara Dwaravatimagat. Thus, O King, the personality of Godhead, who is a devotee of his own devotee, stayed for some time with his two great devotees, teaching them how perfect saints behave. He then returned to Dwarka. In this verse, the word Sanmargam, this is the last text of the previous chapter, text 59, where it uh, 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 which they have uh, quoted. Now, do you see that phrase is in there? Sat, sat Margam, the path of the Sat. And here in the text, it's translated as pure devotees, the, showing the behavior of perfect Marga path or way of being or behavior of satmargam. Uh, and so now they uh, uh, go, here they say, in this verse the word sanmargam can be understood in at least three ways. So here in the, when it was previously translated, and in that context, satmargam, the path of uh, 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 perfect devotees. Uh, in the first way of understanding it, sat is to mean devotee of the Supreme Lord. And thus, sanmargam means the path of bhakti yoga, devotional service. The word is sat, but then by Sanskrit grammatical rules, because that T is next to an M, it becomes an N. You don't say satmargam if you just start, so you'll say sanmargam, the T will turn into an N. Uh, and in Sanskrit, these kind of changes are expressed uh, in the writing. Where in English, we have similar changes, but we don't, doesn't show up in the writing. Uh, like if you, uh, if, if you say cow, cows and boys, right? The S in the end is the same S. But one is cows and then boys. You know, it's changed, right? But our spelling doesn't reflect it. But in Sanskrit, whenever there's such a change like that because of the proximity of other words, it's in the writing. And you have to learn it all. <laughs> so, so that's how this satmargam becomes sanmargam. They actually show it, what you actually say. Uh, so it's so much better than other languages, you know. I mean, it's just like really. I mean, just by the way, I mean, the whole idea of philology and study of languages occurred to Europeans after they discovered Sanskrit. Oh, that's how you do it. You know. I mean, I mean look at the Sanskrit alphabet. You know, it's so. You know, the f- first group of sounds. In the, the concept kaka gaga na cha cha that goes up from where it's pronounced to here, you know. What's the English out? A B C D. It's stupid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you can't say we're more advanced. <laughs> By the way, anyway. So sat marga. So the first meaning sat is uh, 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 taken to mean devotee of the Lord. And thus, Sanmarga means the path of bhakti yoga, devotional service. In the second, uh, with Sat meaning a seeker of transcendental knowledge, Satmarga means the philosophical path of knowledge. Sat refers to a, a Brahman, a, a Brahmana. The path of philosophical knowledge. Uh, the philosophical path of knowledge which has impersonal Brahman as its object. And in the third, with Sat referring to transcendental sound of the Vedas, Sanmarga means the process of following Vedic injunctions. Both the second and the third of these interpretations of Sanmarga lead to the question of how the Vedas can be described can describe the absolute truth. So what they're explaining is why this chapter follows from the last verse where Satmargam is the 
path of uh, understood there as the path of uh, of devotional uh, uh, the, the way of devotees. But here with Maharaj Parikshit, his question is prompted by the other ideas of Sanmargam. So that's what uh, wants to know about how the Vedas describe the absolute truth. Uh, so now, so they're just explaining the continuity here between these, these two chapters coming from this word Sanmargam and its different meanings. Srila Sridhar Swami, is that clear? I mean, okay. Srila Sridhar Swami elaborately analyzes this problem in terms of traditional disciplines of Sanskrit poetics. We should consider that words have three kinds of expressive capacities called Shabdavrittis. Shabda uh, Vritti uh, 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 is, uh, I looked up in the Sanskrit dictionary, it's like a term of art dealing with rhetoric on speech, and it, basically it means the function of a word, Shabda, meaning a word, and Vritti, uh, meaning uh, here function. I mean, it can mean your occupational duty and so on. So what's the occupational duty of a word? <laughs> you could say, so it's a shabda vritti. Right? Uh, there are different... And so here in, in, in Sanskrit, the sages have analyzed the different functions of words. They do linguistic analysis. Uh, uh, those... Uh, there are d- the different ways a word refers to its meaning distinguished as mukya vritti, lakshana vritti, and gona vritti. The shabda vritti termed mukya is the primary literal meaning of a word. Uh, mukya uh, means face. On the face of it, what's the meaning? Mukya vritti. Uh, this is also known as abidda, a word's denotation or uh, dictionary meaning. Uh, uh, these also, uh, we have them elsewhere in Prabhupada's uh, writings, these, these terms show up. Uh, 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 he also, uh, in, in commenting on the uh, uh, Adi Lila 71111, uh, the purport, where we're dealing with uh, same the same topic, Lord Chaitanya talking to the Maya bodies at Varanasi, where the same idea comes up. Prabhupada says, Srila Bhakti Siddhanta comments that Mukya Vritti, the direct meaning, is Abhidha Vritti, or the meaning that one can understand immediately from the statements of the dictionaries. So there it is. The same same two terms show up there. So these are uh, conventional, uh, you know, the traditional ways of distinguishing the various senses of the word. So there's just the direct meaning, the mukya vritti. Uh, yeah. Called uh, these are the different ways a word distinguished as mukya vritti, lakshana vritti, and gona vritti. The shabda vritti term mukya is the primary literal meaning of a word that is also known as abhidha, a word's denotation or direct meaning. That, that's the first one, the mukya. Then mukya vritti is further divided into two subcategories, namely rudhi and yoga. A primary meaning is called rudhi when it is based on conventional usage, and yoga when it is derived from another word's meaning by regular etymological rules. For example, the word go, cow, is an example of rudhi since its relationship with its literal meaning is purely conventional. It's decided that this sound will denote this 
thing, a cow, right? Uh, uh, but the denotation of the word pachaka, chef, cook, uh, pachaka, on the other hand, is a yoga vritti through the words deviation, uh, derivation from the word pach, to cook, by addition of the agent suffix ka. Pach is a cook, and pachaka is that agent which cooks. So that's the that's the literal meaning. Besides its mukya vritti or primary meaning, a word can also be used in a secondary metaphorical sense. This usage is called lakshana, uh, uh, and that's the indirect or figurative sense of the term. Uh, so they explain this lakshana. Vritti. The rule is that a word should not be understood metaphorically if its mukya vritti makes sense in the giving context. Only after the mukya vritti fails to convey a word's meaning may lakshana vritti be justifiably presumed. The function of lakshana is technically explained in the Kavya Shastra, Kavya meaning poetry, uh, uh, as an extended reference pointing to something in some way related to the object of the literal meaning. And here's the conventional example. Thus the phrase Gangayam Goshaha literally means the cowherd village in the Ganges. Or we would say normally in English, the village on the Ganges. Well, that doesn't mean the village is floating on the water. It's a conventional way of saying it's on the bank of the Ganges. So the literal meaning doesn't work. Thus the phrase, uh, Gangayam Goshaha, literally means the cowherd village on the Ganges, but that idea is observed, so Gangayam should rather be understood by its lakshana to mean on the bank of the Ganges, the bank being some, something related to a river. So that's this lakshana vritti. <coughs> when uh, Prabhupada talks about this, well, go, we'll go on. Gonavritti is a special kind of lakshana where the meaning is extended to some idea of similarity. For example, in the statement, Simho Devadatta, Devadatta is a lion. Heroic Devadatta is metaphorically called a lion because of his lion-like qualities. You don't mean literally that he's a lion. That is not the name of a lion. It is the name of the lion-like Devadatta. Yeah, he's a lion, you know. Okay, we know what that means. Like a lion. In contrast, in the example of the general kind of laksha, namely Gangaya Goshaha, involves a relationship not of similarity but of location. So Prabhupada mentions this, for example. The Gonavritti uh, is a meaning that one imagines without consulting the dictionary. <laughs> For example, one politician has said Kurukshetra refers to the body. But in the dictionary, there's no such definition. Kurukshetra is a place, but they're interpreting, well, one politician, he means Mahatma Gandhi. He never, when he's going to criticize somebody generally in writing, he doesn't use their name. But uh, since, uh, 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 since, since Gandhi wanted nonviolence, and the Bhagavad Gita is directly endorsing violence, <laughs> he take, he wants to make the whole thing allegorical. So therefore, actually, Kurukshetra is the body, uh, and you have to conquer over the sense. You know that he turns it into, he takes, he makes up. This this Gonavritti. Uh, so that was one politician, or another time, uh, uh, Krishna's black. Yeah, black means unknown. 
black means something that's dark, you can't see, therefore we can't know. So it actually symbolizes the unaccessibility of the absolute truth in that way. So the name Krishna refers to the impersonal. And that's what it really means. Since the direct meaning, gona, black, well, that's, you know, that's a whole problem. Uh, out of the word black, which we use to refer to things in this world, refer to transcendental. So that's the, so that's these these things. This abhidha, uh, 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 mukya, gona, lakshana. These are the, the terms that have been explained here. So I'm going on. In this first verse of the 87th chapter, Parikshit Maharaj expresses doubt as to how the words of the Vedas can refer to the absolute truth by any of the valid kinds of Shabda Vritti. He asks, Katam Sakshat Charanti, how can the Vedas directly describe Brahman by Rudha Mukya Vritti? Literally meaning based on convention. After all, the Absolute is Anirdesha, inaccessible to designation. That's the word that's here. Uh, uh, Anir Deshe in the first line. Uh, Anir Deshe, uh, inaccessible. Uh, uh, yeah, the word, uh, you know, the word Desh, like Bangladesh, you know, place, or Deshi, meaning, you know, an Indian who lives in America, is it called a Deshi, uh, 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 meaning a, a point, a region, a spot, a place, you know, Deshe. Uh, and so uh, uh, nirdesha means a, a description or a mention or details or particulars or so anirdesha is without that uh, so different ways of translating anirdesha I mean the dictionary gives absence of rule or direction but uh, I looked up how Prabhupada translates at various times in his uh, commentaries uh, he's indefinite, uh, uh, not perceivable by the senses. Uh, he uses it that way in Bhagavatam 7, 5, 41. Uh, uh, or referring to Krishna again, Anirdeshe, uh, we cannot understand him to be in a particular place for he is all pervasive. That's very not in a, a, any one place. Uh, uh, anirdesha not to be described because of being subtle uh, so anirdesha indescribable imperceptible and so on so these are the senses of this anirdesha inaccessible to designation which is a very good definition and how can the Vedas even describe Brahman by Gonavriti metaphors based on similar qualities since you don't even know what the qualities are to begin with The Vedas are guna vrittayaha, full of qualitative descriptions, but Brahman is naguna without qualities. You have to understand that the Upanishads are a small part of the Vedas, by the way. The Vedas mainly deal with the three modes, uh, be, be, because there's the karma kanda, the jnana kanda. Uh, so the karma kanda is mostly what the Vedas is about. Uh, it describes the world, it describes the devas, it describes sacrifice, and so on. That's the main part of the four Vedas. Uh, 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 <coughs> is there. Uh, and the, the Samhita, the Rig Vedas, the Ayurveda, and so on. The, the Samhita, Veda Samhitas are all uh, the hymns for sacrifice and the rules for sacrifice and the rules for behavior and then there's the uh, the uh, the brahmanas which is the for the vedas adapted for the people who are uh, uh, forest dwellers who live have gone to the forest and therefore once you are no longer living in a village but have gone to the become a recluse uh, you know then, then you can't 
you can't uh, you can't uh, uh, perform sacrifice. So you, therefore, you do mental things, and then finally, uh, there's Vedanta which only means the end of the Vedas where then you start to reflect philosophically on the deeper meaning of things and then Vedanta tends to mostly be uh, understood that that portion of the Vedas, the Upanishads uh, which are are a lot of the description of the Upanishads are impersonal in Brahman and some are not so how do we understand it? Uh, so can how can the Vedas actually describe Krishna, who has name, form, qualities, and pastimes? That becomes the subject, uh, and it was done. Of course, then then of course what what has happened is Shankara when Shankaracharya comes around. He basically imports uh, uh, covered Buddhism, <laughs> as is described, uh, and gives gives the impersonal understanding, uh, non-theistic understanding of the Upanishads. Uh, but anyway, so this is this is the important chapter. The Vedas are guna vrittaya, full of qualitative descriptions, but Brahman is near guna without quality. So guna, uh, uh, near guna Brahman, Brahman without qualities. How do you describe neti, 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 not this, not that, not this, not that? Uh, uh, which uh, can be understood as a hostile act to Krishna. You're describing God as the greatest. He has no name. He has no form. He has no quality. He has no uh, senses. That is, he's lame, deaf, dumb, blind. <laughs> so therefore, there's some hostility uh, behind that. So they say, so even a metaphorical meaning uh, a gunavriti doesn't work because a metaphor based on similar qualities cannot apply in the case of something that has no qualities. Furthermore, Parikshit Maharaj points out that Brahman is sadasat param, beyond both cause and effect. For some reason, the word sat means effect and asat means cause. And I can't, I can't figure out why. <laughs> Uh, that is, except uh, for the idea that usually causes are subtle and effects are gross in, in, the, in the evolution of the universe, or that causes are incomplete and the effects are the completion of the causes, so they're considered sat-a-sat. But I'm not quite sure of that. But anyway, that's one meaning of sat-a-sat cause, uh, effect first and then cause. Having no connection with manifest existence, subtle or gross, the absolute cannot be expressed by either yoga vritti, a meaning derived etymologically, or lakshana, metaphor, since both require some relationship of Brahman to other entities. You see, because if we, if we use the English word absolute, it's the opposite of relative. So the absolute is classical definition in the Upanishads, ekam eva adutiya, Brahman. Brahman is that besides which there is no second thing. As soon as there's a second thing, it's relative. If there's Brahman, if there's Brahman and then a world, this is how the thinking goes, then Brahman would be limited. Because Brahman ends here and the world begins there. So therefore, the idea that there's a world it has to be some kind of illusory superimposition upon Brahman. This is the Mayavada philosophy. Because Brahman is a, that besides which there is no second thing. There can't even be me perceiving Brahman because that's too... 
So this is this is how this philosophy, which Bhakti Siddhanta describes, is a lax, indolent presentation, <laughs> lazy. Uh, uh, Thus, King Pariksit is puzzled as how the words of the Vedas can directly describe the absolute truth. I think, by, by, by the way, that, that, that to me, the thing, I, when I first came to Krishna consciousness, I was a Mayavadi, and I assumed the devotees were doing that, they were Mayavadis too, and this was just something that we do. Uh, uh, the, until we can reach the higher stage, you know, and I was just assuming that they were Maya bodies. But when I got Prabhupada's Isha Upanishad translation, right in the very beginning, he said something that the, the, uh, I, I don't have it directly in front of me now. But he's, he, he he says that the speculators try to distinguish absolute from relative by their mental speculation. And they, they determine what the absolute by the denial of relative material names, form, and qualities. Not this, not that. No name, no form. This is the denial. So we get rid of all those things and then we have the absolute. He said, but this is based on a distinction between the absolute and the relative that itself is a duality. So they are still within the realm of duality. They're reacting against one thing. So their thinking of distinguishing the absolute from the relative depends upon that distinction. So their negations are also relative because to negate something, not this, well, yeah, it depends on there being a this to be the not of, to have any meaning. So therefore, if you really want to come to the absolute position, you have to have a position that somehow includes both the relative and the absolute in some higher synthesis. And that's what did it. That's, that's the answer. <laughs> and therefore, you know, the idea that there can be transcendental or spiritual name, form, and qualities is beyond them. Because they're reacting against the material world. And therefore it's a reactionary position and it depends upon that not liking the world and rejecting it. How is Krishna one without a second? Because the idea of Krishna understood as a whole, he, he includes his energies. And therefore, he's Savishesha. Or as Prabhupada put it, his koan, you know, his, his, nothing is different from Krishna, yet Krishna is different from everything. That is, there's nothing but Krishna. That's the absolute. There's no second thing. Yet nothing is Krishna save and except his own primordial personality. This is the meaning of Achincha Veda Abeda Tattva. And that's what we'll come to understand from this chapter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Any questions or comments? Yeah. So, so the mind is just to just to show that. Now we came to the end of the purport, by the way. Next verse has three page, four more, even longer. Go ahead. Just to be clear, so the Mahavad is the idea is that since Brahman should have everything, so we say there's the world, so that means it, it is relative, so it can't actually yeah. exist. Uh, well, you know, like, like, like a, a Christian Mayavadi, uh, <coughs> he said, he said uh, this Paul Tillich, uh, and uh, by the way, there's Christian Maya. I mean, you know, once you speculate, you end up in the same place. It's universal. And you go to any religious tradition, you'll find Maya bodies. Uh, and some privilege it higher than others, you know, like in Buddhism and some parts of Hinduism, that's the main thing. 
But there's, a, there's also that strand in Christianity, and there's even that strand in, in, in Islam. Uh, but but anyway, what Tillich says, God cannot be the supreme being among all beings, because that would make him one being among many and limit him. Therefore, God is being itself. And then he decided that was too specific and decided he's the ground of being. But you notice, you know, ground? Where does that word come from? You know, I mean, anyway. <laughs> so ultimately, you just can't say a word. Great, if they just followed their philosophy, they couldn't even preach it. It couldn't even be written about. But they do it anyway. The rascal. <laughs> you know, that philosophy cannot be spoken. So why so many volumes of books? <laughs> if it's Anir Desha, you can't, you know. You can't even say impersonal Brahman. That's a designation, you know. Anything else? That you understand? Huh? Yeah. Just uh, continuing on your little comment on that is when I was um, at Harvard Divinity, <laughs> I remember one class, there was about 40 of us in the class, and we had to read some Paul Tillich, of course, because it's uh-huh. Harvard Divinity. And the very first paragraph of the article said, as we all know, God has no characteristics or this or this and anything. Just yeah. cuts everything as if it was just assumed by everybody. Mm-hmm. We all know that. We can move on from that mm-hmm. idea now. And everybody in the classroom was just like, oh yes, we all know that. Mm-hmm. There, was no, there was no debate even on that one point. <laughs> it's funny in academics that there's, the, there's always this, we all know this, so now let's go on from there. And if you question that, you know, people freak out like crazy. Yeah, they did. I, I, I brought it up and it was like, people didn't know what to do. <laughs> one, one professor I know referred to academics as a herd of independent minds. <laughs> because they they heard they all had to, you have to belong to this group otherwise, you know. Because the most devastating you can say in any academic department is, oh, we don't do that anymore, or we don't do that here. And you're like, that's it, you know. It's like you're wearing the wrong kind of clothes to, uh, you know. Then you're just out of it. You don't belong. (laughs) That's how it works. And this is the quest for truth, right? Forget it. (laughs) Okay. Thank you very much. Shri Prabhupada Ki Jai. Shri Mad Bhagavatam Ki Jai.